Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week, I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is Robert Tsai. He's the author of Practical Equality, Forging Justice in a Divided Nation and Professor of Law at American University. I'd been thinking about whether laws can actually protect and ensure our equality in a democratic society and to what extent these laws actually enhance the lives of citizens. His book looks at pragmatic approaches towards equality and justice in America. He examines instances where the law fails us, like in the case of Plessy versus Ferguson, or with the recent Muslim ban. Well, equality is important in a democratic society because it, it sets some baselines. It tells us how people should be treated, what a citizen or a full member of the political community ought to be able to expect in terms of rights, in terms of their participation, in terms of the kind of respect that they should be able to get from others. Without that sort of baseline, it's really impossible where you can say with any sense of certainty that the policies you get reflect the broad sense of the community or even anything that approaches justice. We'll be talking about why equality is important in a democratic society how it relates to justice in the history of the law here in the United States, and how fully exposing the indignity of inequality is an effective way to demand change. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I really like the title of your book, Practical Equality. It speaks both to being pragmatic and also to applying equality in practice. How did you come up with the idea to write this book? Well, I guess a number of things converged at the same time. I was paying fairly close attention to the last presidential election and heard some things that were sort of disturbing to me from the equality standpoint. There was a lot of rhetoric about uh, migrants and their propensity to do violence or to engage in criminal behavior some pretty strong things, negative things said about uh, refugees. And I just felt that we were going to probably go through a period where a number of long-standing assumptions about the principle of equality would probably be revisited. The, the other sort of thing that came together was the sense that we were probably going to, in this country, go through a, a generally conservative period in terms of our politics and our institutions, reconsideration of more progressive people in charge. So that's kind of what prompted me to start thinking hard about what it takes to get equality and justice done in America. I like that you have used all of these concrete examples to illustrate why certain things are important. That leads me to my next question. Why is equality important in a democratic society? Well, equality is important in a democratic society because it, it sets some baselines, right? It tells us how people should be treated, what a citizen or a full member of the political community ought to be able to expect in terms of rights, in terms of their participation, in terms of the kind of respect that they should be able to get from others. Without that sort of baseline, it's really impossible where you can say with any sense of certainty that the policies you get reflect the broad sense of the community or even anything that approaches justice. How can the law provide for equality? Because you primarily look at this, of course, from a law professor point of view, and almost everything you cited are precedents that have been set in the U.S. from a law perspective. Yeah, so law plays 
an important role in the way we Americans think about equality and justice. We deal with questions of justice in our everyday life, how we ought to treat others, uh, how they ought to treat us, and helps uh, shape the conversation. It sort of puts parameters on how we talk about equality and justice. And then, of course, there's the sort of traditional way we think about law, which is that once people actually have a dispute, they're not happy with a particular law, President Trump's Muslim travel ban is an example, law plays a kind of dispute resolution role. And then when we have a real fight over something and it lands in court, that's kind of what judges draw on to sort of tell us who's right and who's wrong. Yeah, I think uh, it's a great mechanism for us. But sometimes it fails. And you mentioned this several times in the book that judges either want to delay or appease and inadvertently or maybe even on purpose make the situation worse. One of the most interesting cases was Plessy versus Ferguson. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. Plessy versus Ferguson is the infamous case where the Supreme Court of the United States upheld a Louisiana law that required trains that pass through the state to be segregated on the basis of race. The Supreme Court not only upheld that law, but as I sort of talk about in the book, said some additional things about the complaint that the African-American litigant raised that I think are really, really terrible. So for example, the justices brushed aside his complaint and said, if he has a complaint about not being able to sit with a white passenger and he feels demeaned, then this is just a figment of his imagination. This is sort of a kind of dismissive characterization of someone's complaint about justice and inequality that is always a terrible place to start. That's a kind of failing where you don't have to be a racist to have failed. It's a failing of not being able to step in someone else's shoes and understanding how a kind of mistreatment can reverberate in a lot of tangible ways. But there's also just sort of everyday problems that can arise that lead to law failing us. And and I try to talk a lot about those because that's where movement can be had, right? Where people aren't overtly racist, they think of themselves as fair-minded, but mistakes can be made. And I think that's a lot of where Plessy versus uh, Ferguson falls down and, and, and could have turned out differently. Yeah. In fact, you mentioned in your book that discrimination is an arbitrary indignity. And I think it's very difficult to explain that if you haven't ever really felt it, that if you are on the receiving end of a racist policy, that you're just imagining it. And we're still seeing it today. We are. We are. There is a school of thought about racist or, or bigoted policies that characterizes these kinds of things as is irrational. According to this view, which I, I try to honor by, by making sure it's in the book, racist or otherwise bigoted policies are irrational in the sense that they're often based on a completely false, a non-empirical, outsized assumptions about groups of people, whether they are African-Americans, whether they're Hispanic, or in the case of World War II and the internment of 
Japanese Americans, right, that any person of Japanese ancestry was inherently suspicious and potentially a traitor. The fact that people reason from some very tiny, small sample size or the actions of one person who might belong to a social group to the entire group, that's what these folks are saying when they say that these kinds of policies can sometimes be irrational. Well, one of the things that I wonder, you know, in all the examples that you cited in the book is how those things affect our society at large. For example, with the Muslim ban, like what does it actually mean for Americans? If we think about ourselves, let's say 50 years from now, what are the logical repercussions of letting something like that stand? That's a fantastic question. It's something I think about a lot, and it's one of the ways in which law can really reinforce and create new problems. If you have uh, politicians and policymakers uh, making policy, enforcing policy based on racist or bigoted um, assumptions that aren't empirically correct, and then judges ratify those policies, judges make things worse in a couple of ways. One, it ends up reinforcing the false sense that the policymaker's judgment was correct in the first place. And that leads to the sort of second concern, which is that when judges end up approving or ratifying broad-based judgments about social groups, that this will then encourage other people who want to target a particular social group to kind of ramp up those kinds of policies, to actually not only follow the logic that was just approved, but then to kind of ratchet up uh, the harshness. And so there are some places where I think this is the danger with the Supreme Court's 5-4 approval of President Trump's uh, Muslim ban. He talked about it as an effort to do something to harm the Muslim community, to keep them out of the country. And of course, they never used the term Muslim but as everybody points out, the countries that were identified are 97, 98% uh, Muslim majority. But the Supreme Court, uh, in this controversial decision, just sort of took it at face value that there wasn't anti-Muslim sentiment. There's a huge disjunction between what the Supreme Court said in its opinion and I think how most average people understand what the president wanted to do and what he was able to do. I think that this is a, a terrible decision, a tragic one, as I, I call it in the book, and one that's going to come back and haunt the court. So thinking about this from a law perspective, how can this be rectified? Is it necessary for there to be another case to go to the Supreme Court, or is there another way to basically right this wrong? Or maybe there isn't. <laughs> Uh, as much as I, I think it's important to be practical and, and hard-nosed about equality and justice, I'm a sort of secret optimist at heart. I, I always think there's something that we can do to kind of work around uh, obstacles, even a, a terrible obstacle like this. First of all, I think that it's very, very important for average people uh, who care about uh, religious equality, who worry about ethno-nationalism in America, to really deny that very narrow ruling against equality, the kind of public legitimacy that you know the Supreme Court is hoping that that ruling will get. There's a lot of examples in history. Uh, Plessy versus Ferguson is just one. People thought that over time, something that the Supreme Court did was deeply unjust, deeply immoral. I think that's the first project. It's a long-term project. 
and it, it's about changing or at least extending the kind of popular judgment about what the court has done. But the other thing is, is how do we ameliorate the immediate harms? If you care about equality and justice, it's important to think long-term what equality means in the abstract. We've got to have realistic strategies for ameliorating the kind of unequal harms that, that some of these groups are facing. There is something that we can do, and, and it's happening right now. There's sort of a follow-up litigation to the travel ban, and there's now more evidence. One of the things that the Supreme Court relied on in the case in approving it was there's this sort of formal waiver uh, process where individuals could seek relief. They could ask for some sort of humanitarian waiver. And we now have a lot more evidence about how the administration has implemented that. And it looks like they are denying waivers, even though there are a lot of reasons where people can cite them pretty strongly across the board. And now we have a different kind of set of arguments about how the administration might be carrying out what they claim is a neutral policy, but remains a kind of anti-Muslim and deeply unequal policy. So I think we'll see uh, these cases start to percolate up into the federal courts and, and the media will start to pay more attention to them. But I think we'll see some follow-up litigation. No, oh, that sounds very hopeful. You talk about being practical, being pragmatic, and you have to be creative. So, uh, talk a little bit more about that, because I think for people who are not lawyers, it sounds totally abstract. Right. It's great. So uh, we can be creative um, in thinking about quality in, in a number of ways. One of the ways I focus on in my book is that if we sense that there is a major obstacle in our way, we can change the conversation a little bit by recharacterizing our dispute in a way where we bring other kinds of values into play. So for example, the idea of equality overlaps conceptually with the idea of dignity, and it also overlaps at times with the idea of fairness or fair play. If you have a dispute where it could be described in a number of ways, then sometimes it can be effective to change the conversation by emphasizing one of those other values, for example. Let me bring back the travel ban. I think most people thought that when President Trump banned entry to the United States from all these majority Muslim countries, that this was a problem of religious equality. But what we saw during the litigation was some concerns about that position because after all, as judges start to ask more questions, they noticed that he didn't use the term Muslim or refer to religion in his executive order. He also didn't appear to try to ban all Muslims worldwide. And in other words, he only identified some countries from the Middle East. And so is this really the best way to think about what he tried to do. So he had these doubts sort of creep in uh, in a way that lawyers and judges really worry about. What's interesting is that when some of their colleagues raise these concerns about the equality argument, the other judges sort of move to different ground. They move the idea that fairness might have been the problem or at least one of the major problems. And a lot of the early decisions that we see coming out of the Ninth Circuit, for example, said that What's clearly wrong with the travel ban is it upset people's expectations of how they would be treated in a kind of fairness sense. So the court said that it appeared for a while that the ban affected permanent residents. But that's a problem, right? Because permanent residents are people with green cards. They're in legal processes here trying to become citizens. 
they have some expectations about how they ought to be treated. And so suddenly the president has upset all of these expectations and this is unfair, right? And what's striking about this is that, that this ends up getting a kind of unanimous agreement, the fairness argument, and they're able to avoid some of the harder questions that have to do with the sort of equality argument. That's a good point. But so how do you feel about that? If you are, uh, I mean, you're clearly practical, but if you really are for equality, is it in a way really not good enough? I think this is always the dilemma. We have to ask ourselves, do you want to go down fighting and go down swinging and lose a lot? Or do you want to try to convince someone to come to your side um, so that you can kind of reduce in a tangible way some people's suffering? And while the fairness argument in the travel ban case wasn't strong enough to strike down the whole thing, what's interesting is that ultimately it forced the administration to kind of rewrite their policy. They made some decisions to cut out certain groups of people. Um, certain, they left out certain countries. I'm pretty sure Iraq eventually falls out of the ban and, uh, and certainly Saudi Arabia. And this alone affects uh, hundreds of thousands of people and their relatives and their friends. And I think that these are the tangible things that the fairness argument was able to push the administration to grapple with. So I do think it's important to keep pushing that argument as far as it can go, but to recognize that sometimes we can shift gears and try to reduce some of the harms anyway. Yeah, that's a good argument for remaining practical. I want to switch gears a little bit because you dedicate a chapter on the freedom of speech. And as we are now facing a lot of hate speech in this country, what is the case for freedom of speech in the name of equality? This is, I think, one of our challenges right now. How committed can we be to freedom of speech in this more absolutist sense that the United States has been, I think, for a good part of the 20th century. We're in a moment where we're sort of rethinking how protective we ought to be of sort of explicitly bigoted speech. This country made a choice that other countries have not made, which is to be as protective as possible. I think we could certainly draw the line somewhere else, but I think that there is a reason for where the court has drawn the line. And that is to say that if you believe that each individual has the right to do a set of things, to speak freely, to think what they want to think, it's not just about those rights. It's also a way of treating them equally, right? With equal dignity, we might say. I spend some time keeping up with the white nationalist thought um, because it's if you believe in equality, you need to understand what enemies of equality think. And they're definitely enemies of equality. But I think that they get, the, they get the right to say what they want to say. They get the right to express themselves as long as it doesn't cross a particular line. It doesn't pose a threat to the rest of us. In Charlottesville, the real problem there isn't that they got to march, I think. It's that the conditions weren't safe enough for everybody else. I think that the protesters should have been separated and there should have been very clear conditions set on those who might come to a location to stir up, uh, not just counter protest, but to start fights and to maybe to get somebody killed. And then if you can take care of those problems, then we can really 
enforce the idea that whoever you are, whether you've got something great to say or something, you know, hateful, we're going to let it get aired out and people can make up their minds on their own. That's well said. You have to impose safe process so you can have the discourse about the ideas as opposed to brawling about it. In your mind, what are we losing in our democracy when we don't have equality? I think we lose a lot. The fact that people are losing out on economic opportunities, job prospects, educational opportunities. I think we also lose something in terms of thinking about a political community as a reflection of who we want to be and who we want to be seen as. When we treat people collectively unequally, whether it's on the basis of religion or race or sex, we are saying that some people effectively are less than others. And this message is not just one of hierarchy, which it is, but it's also a deeply demoralizing message. And that message itself is internalized by people and it affects their sense of self-worth. I really do believe this is one of the truly tangible things that happens directly from unequal policy. So if we pay better attention, if we find ways to reduce the harms that only some people suffer for no good reason, we really can then hold ourselves out as a community that really cares about equality and justice. But if we don't do those things, then we don't deserve that reputation. And that's how our sense of ourselves is deeply connected to how others see us as well. Yes, I totally agree. As a layperson, what are two things I could do in support of egalitarianism? One is, is that it's hard to solve problems at purely the abstract level. And so one way in which we can all endeavor to, to be better at is to respond with facts. Enemies of equality often try to raise broad principles like, oh, states' rights or tradition or something like this. And it can be very, very effective in picking off people in the middle if you focus on the facts of inequality, the harms that people suffer on an everyday basis. With the travel ban, it's the child who needed emergency care and who can't get it because suddenly the president decided uh, he needed to fulfill a campaign promise. That's one of the things we can all do is to bore down into the nitty gritty, the squalor, the facts, the indignity of inequality. I think this is really how you get people to really see a problem in a, uh, in a new way. I think the other thing is local activism. I really believe that we are as a country going through a period of profound sort of conservative institutional kind of dominance of a number of these questions. Certainly if we think about the Supreme Court, of the United States. This is about as conservative a Supreme Court on rights that you'll see for the next generation, I think, unless something changes. There are opportunities, and, and one of those opportunities is to get much more involved in state and local activism. There are uh, races at the state level that almost no one pays attention to, but are so important if you care about equality. One is Secretary of State. The Secretary of State has the authority to make hugely impactful decisions about voting rights, can grant or disapprove local county efforts to move things or to close polling stations or to extend voting hours. We saw this, for example, in the Bush versus Gore election, right? The fact that the Republican Party held the Secretary of State office was 
absolutely essential in shaping how that race unfolded and eventually how the Supreme Court looked at the race. The Secretary of State has been hugely important in places like Virginia, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Ohio, in all these places where you have some desire on the part of, uh, say, the Republican Party to purge voters from the rolls or to engage in forms of uh, voter suppression. So I think activism is going to be really something that, that we can do if we care about equality and justice. Lots of places at the local level where we can get involved. Right. Yes. The Secretary of State bit is so important. I'm glad you mentioned it because I think, especially in the case of Georgia with Stacey Abrams's oh, race, that is the optimal example and so current and that she is now really a proponent for voting rights and making sure that everybody's vote is counted. And Georgia was egregious because you had someone running for the governorship at the same time he was holding the position of secretary of state. Some of us would call that a conflict of interest, but apparently he didn't see it that way. <laughs> yes, he did not see it that way. Last question, looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? Uh, what makes me hopeful is when I travel around the country, and I've done a little bit of traveling with this book, I do see a sense of energy and interest. We can't really make the future much better unless we're willing to confront the past. In all of my work, I, I try to go back and recover some lessons uh, from the past that might help us think through some of the intractable problems of justice we face today. And I really sense kind of a hunger and interest in that. And to me, that's that's the most hopeful thing, because it's the only way that we can really start to do something differently. Thank you for your time, and thank you for your work in equality and justice for all Americans. Thank you so much. It was great. There's no question that the law is powerful. It provides both a framework for how we treat each other as citizens and a way to resolve disputes. Perhaps most importantly, the law is a true force for both equality and injustice in this country. Practical equality means chipping away at injustice in order to rectify the past. I'm reminded of my conversation with Bernard Harcourt in our pilot episode that justice is not an end destination. It's something that we must continually strive for. Our democracy is stronger when equality and justice are guaranteed and when our laws ensure that they are. Next week, our guest is Suzanne Nossel. She's the CEO of PEN America, the leading human rights and free expression organization. She's a prominent voice on issues of free expression in the United States and around the globe. We'll be picking up where this podcast left off on equality and the subject of the First Amendment and dedicate a whole episode to talking about how the First Amendment supports democracy here in the United States. The president has his own First Amendment rights. He's also a citizen, so he can needle a journalist. He can call someone out by name. There's not much we can do to constrain him from expressing himself in that way. That's the First Amendment. But what the president can't do, but has done, is to mobilize the power of the federal government to retaliate against coverage that he does not like. So when the president withdraws a hard pass, a White House press credential from a journalist in retaliation for harsh questioning, 
That is the action of government to inhibit freedom of speech. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Zumbu. Additional production by Brooke Sayan. Listen to us online at futurehindsight.com or your favorite streaming service. Thank you.